You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Hey, everybody, you are watching or listening to an episode of Wake Up Call, the podcast. And today we have a very special guest for the hashtag FemSquire series, and that is Heather Keith, who has a family law practice in New Jersey. Welcome, Heather. Great to be here, Christina. I love your podcast. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's nice to have a Jersey girl on here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from listening to the show that I start out every interview with the same question. Yeah. Where did you go to college and what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Oh my God. Well, I went to college at Oberlin college in, uh, in Ohio, which is like this pinko liberal commie school where we all had bright ideas and we, nobody knew exactly what they were going to do, but by God, we're going to change the world. So <laughs> that's where I went to school. Um, I actually, uh, came into the conservatory on the music side and uh, ended up in the in the uh, in the college. It's on the on the same campus. So I ended up on the college side with a music major. So uh, music performance. I'm a singer. So that's a you know something. Another <laughs> singer. I have yeah. to tell you that I keep seeing a recurring theme here with my fem squires mm -hmm. that a lot of them were in the arts. Mm -hmm. So that's do you find that it's like in a particular practice area or just across the board? Well, I have interviewed a lot of family law attorneys, just being mm -hmm. one myself, and a lot of them are family law attorneys, but I'm going to have to pay more attention to that. Yeah. I was just curious to see if the, the artistic type gravitates towards the sort of people-oriented family, you know, the family law setting. I was just curious about that. I think they gravitate towards litigation. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. You know, somebody asked me, in fact, my very first, I was a 2L, and I was uh, interning at uh, one of the uh, spinoffs of Bell Labs, Avaya, at the time, and in doing document review. And in the interview, they said, so what's the thing with music? How do you think that's going to help you uh, in law? Like, what does it have to do with law? And of course, you know, I could have answered in any, you know, any number of ways. I mean, it's, it's, it's logical. It's, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it, it engages the same parts of your brain that, that uh, figuring out logical arguments for law engages as well. And what I said, and what, and what I totally believe is that, well, there's a real similarity between music, performing music and practicing law in that you can, pr you prepare and you prepare and you prepare and you prepare and you prepare some more and then you prepare and when you're done with preparing you prepare some more but when the moment comes when you have to be like you're you're like in it to win it and you don't know what's going to happen you better be able to improvise so you have to know your way around everything so it's the same like being in the courtroom i found is very similar to preparing for any kind of music performance. You don't know, it, it's in the moment, in other words. Like, it's, like you kind of know what's gonna go on, but you don't have 100%, anything could go wrong. It could go sideways. You know, your mic could go out in a performance or, you know, just anything could happen. You could forget the words. And then you have to, then you have to be on your feet, as they say, right? Just like- Yes, and the preparation <laughs> can go great, but uh -huh. well, all that really matters is what happened when you were actually doing it. 
when the rubber hits the for the road. performance. That's yes, right. when the rubber hits the road. That's right. So which one's more stressful? Well, um, well, I, <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I enjoy music, so it's a, it, it's you know, you think like, oh, stage fright and all that. I mean, yeah, but but music is like it's very. You perf- you do perform it and it is a performance, but there's always there's also someone there receiving it. So there's this um, there's this energy that goes between you and the person who's receiving it. And in general, that it's not combative. Nobody's winning. Nobody's losing. Mm. Your version of winning when you win when you quote unquote win a musical performance is when you move someone. Right. So you've moved someone like, say, at a wedding or even at a funeral or at a party or wherever, wherever you're trying to emote something. And you and your your version of the win is to connect with them and to, you know, in fact, make them feel something and make them feel something good. So I've performed not as a soloist, but I performed in Carnegie Hall and all these different places. And it's really, really like it's very, very powerful. And I enjoy it so much. I enjoy it tremendously. And it completely overpowers any sort of nervousness that that you, you definitely get the butterflies just like you do in court. Like you, I'll never forget my first one of my first cases when I left the fir- I left a firm and I went out on my own. And my, one of my very first cases was a jury trial. Let me just tell you, I've never done a jury trial in my life, <laughs> but it was a contractor versus a homeowner. And, uh, you know, we picked the jury and I was all like, you know, studying up ahead of time. Like, how do you pick a jury? What do you, what are you supposed to say to them? How do you, pre- and it, and it, as I, as I studied and talked to my colleagues about it, it's a performance. So yeah. you get everything together and then you walk the floor. And, and, and you you walk the floor with your arguments and you're you're doing examination, you're doing cross-examination, and you're you're eliciting all these emotions. And that it was so it, it felt so familiar to me. I was like, my God, this is just this is very much like a music performance, except that somebody wins at the end in law. Yes, someone wins. <laughs> yeah. Somebody that wins. is interesting. I, I think that's a real interesting distinction yeah. between the two things. Yeah, yeah. Really a lot more similarities than I expected. Yeah, I'm learning that too over time, just doing this podcast. Mm -hmm. But did you say what instrument you played? I'm a singer. Thinking that you're um, playing an instrument. Oh, can you sing? Well, your whole body is an instrument when you're a singer. So that's the cool thing. I mean, talking about energy, like when you stand in the middle of a church or a room and you speak and that resonates through you. And I've heard people say to me, I can't believe that you do what you do because, I mean, it's just like you. It's you making that noise, making that sound, making that whatever, like, like what courage must it take? And I'm like, well, that's, that's one way to look at it from the outside. But really what I'm experiencing is again, that kind that music, that connection between whoever it is that I'm singing to, you know, and, and who's receiving that. So it's very, it's like a, it's like a communion, you know? So when did you know that you could sing? I was about two and uh, I was watching Sesame. Well, I mean, for me, it's, it's almost like saying, when did you know you could speak? Like you pretty much have already always been able to do it, right? Yeah. So it wasn't yeah. unusual. It wasn't not unusual for me um, to be able to sing and carry a tune. Like you've seen, you've probably heard kids and they, they, they sing, but it's not quite right. And they yeah. don't get the pitches right, the timing right and stuff. Well, apparently, um, <laughs> apparently I could do that from basically from, from the beginning. So I would sit in front of the uh, Sesame Street and they had a particular, I memorized all the songs for Sesame Street. And I don't know if that's before before your time no I, anyway. I remember Sesame Street <laughs> anyway there was a there was a song that I remember it was called it was about a starfish 
And uh, apparently I would just plop myself down in front of the TV and sang at the TV in perfect pitch and at the right time and everything. And it was just so natural to, I didn't know what the big deal was. And then my, my mom was like, my God, like, what are you doing? Like, you're, you're actually like singing the words and the tune and the whatever you're totally, you know, you're with it. And so from then on, I was like in the cherub choir at church and like, <laughs> it was, it just went on from there. So, so that's, that's interesting too, because another femme squire who does litigation also mm-hmm. can sing. And we were joking that nobody would ever want to go to karaoke with her. <laughs> Is that you? <laughs> well, I sing a mean white rabbit, but I let other, pe- <laughs> other people, other people can shine. I mean, everybody's got their style, right? So I want to see that. I think you have to come on sometime and sing white rabbit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if I can get I can you to do that. that, then my work is done. <laughs> So I, did you want to make a career out of singing? I listen, I would have loved to, when I was little, um, I, I grew up in rural Michigan. Okay. So those people are like salt of the earth and you just don't do crazy things. Uh, Donna is from Michigan. I know. Right. Yeah. But she's from Detroit though. That's the other side of the state. And you're allowed to do sort of crazy things And Canada's right there. You know, you can go right across (laughs) the, right across the river and you can drink when you're 18. But anyway, um, so I, I, but I did have this one, uh, this one Broadway recording of Annie and I got it in my blood that I wanted to be Andrea McArdle, who was the person who was the Broadway, uh, Annie I really wanted to do it. And I really wanted to do it, but, but I just stopped because there was just no, there was no opportunity where I was particularly. And my voice is not a Broadway voice. It's uh, more of like a classical voice or even like a, I don't do folk singing, but it's probably closer to folk, but it's like not a whole. Yeah, 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 exactly. 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 Yeah. If I'd have picked up a guitar, I could have, yeah. And she's from Alaska. So what's my problem? (laughs) I really missed the boat. Well, (laughs) I have to say I cannot sing to save my life. I mean, I sound good to myself, maybe in the shower or the car, but that's about it. I I know I don't actually sound good, but I tell myself that I do because I like to jam out when I'm in the car. Yeah. But that's one thing I wish that I was a good singer because I love to sing mm-hmm. and get into the music, mm-hmm. but I can't express it because I, my, my singing is just terrible. But you are expressing it. That's what it just feels like when it? you express it. Yeah. It's like, that's like me saying, oh, I wish I could dance, but if you get enough beers in me and put, you know, and put you out on the floor, you're going to do something. And that's that, that's that thing. You're feeling it. You're experiencing it. That's just as much music as everything, any, anything else. It doesn't need to be perfect. But you feel it. That's the important thing. Yes, you're right. That's true. I do feel it. But I can't be Lady Gaga. No. <laughs> well, it'd be nice. Really, but... only Lady Gaga can be Lady Gaga. You're right, right? And only Heather Keith can be Heather Keith. This is true. This is what I'm learning. <laughs> so what is your outlet now for singing? Is is just oh, walking around the house singing or doing karaoke? Is that enough for you? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's kind of hilarious that it turns out that singing is like the most dangerous activity that you can pro- that you can possibly do in this day and age. You know, there have been studies that show. You remember the out that hotspot outbreak and at at like church choir practice that one time where probably eighty percent of the people who were even in, there were were you know affected and so forth. So I used to sing with a madrigal group, and they would come over to my house 
and mm. the, ha- the 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 our music room would just be full of people and and like there were about 15 or 16 of us and we would just make this music and it was just it was it just like you know we have a great room in the back of our house that's like it's like a big it's got beams and a fireplace and everything and just to hear that sound resonating in that it's almost like sitting inside of a cello you know <laughs> you just hear it and it's just it's so healing and everything and yeah I absolutely miss it we don't do it anymore because you know because COVID, right? Yeah. But you know, hey, my my son is uh, six years old and he just picked up the piano. We have a piano in our house, so he just t- did a first lesson yesterday, and he's like vaguely musical. He loves to drum, so um, so that that's kind of my my a little bit of an outlet is to just kind of give him a little peek into like what what it means to play the piano. He loves the piano is easy to play. You just you know you just mash your fingers down on it. But he just he really likes to find all the different keys, and that's the start, by the way, of all of this logical mathematical thinking right? Is that you get it into you and it's like all sort of problem solving and patterns and recognition and things like that. And, but it's a full body experience because you're getting the the sound and the music. So I guess that's my outlet as my kid. (laughs) How old is he? He, he, uh, he turned six in April. That's great. I, that's another uh, regret that I have in life is that I'd never learned how to play an instrument that would have been cool to just grow up with that. But I don't know. Do you think some people just have a natural inclination for that and some don't? I, I do think that people have like a particular ear for it in the same way that I think that some people are really good engineers, really good architects, really good speakers, really good, you know, thinkers, really good. But there there is like there, you do need to have an ear for it. Like my husband is, he's a photographer and he sees really well. He sees all kinds of things that I just don't even see, uh, but he can't carry a tune. So that's me. So I can hear really well. And I, I've always been able to hear things really well, just like different quality, sound qualities and pitches and tones and qualities of tones and things like that. I just always have. It's like you see color or black and white, like you're born that way, you know? So I do think that there are people who are more predisposed to be able to do that. But that said, yeah, you absolutely can learn. You can absolutely learn. And I've also noticed that people who don't have that, the, that you know, I guess talent or, or that proclivity um, can still appreciate, like, like uh, my husband will appreciate Beethoven and he will appreciate Brahms and he knows, like he's hearing good music when he hears it, he understands, you know, he hears what that is, but he can't perform it, but he can play guitar. So, but I do well, think that you can learn. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll maybe I should just put that on my bucket list and play I, I recommend the ukulele. <laughs> ukulele. Okay. That sounds so random. Did well, you it's fest- out of the air? It's festive. It's easy to carry around. It's only got four strings. That, okay. So it must be easier than a guitar. Yes. Okay. Well, here's everybody up to it's a happy thing. I can't sing, but I can talk. I'm good at talking. You are. So, and and listening. I like to hear people's stories. So I like listening yeah. to this stuff. You're a storyteller. Um, I am. Do you think that you're, this just seems kind of random. Do you think that your ability with sound it affects your ability to listen when you're communicating with people? Yeah, I really do. Because, um, you know, you can hear, um, you can hear tones in people's voices. If you're listening, you can hear whether they're whether they're tense in their throats. If they're speaking from you know from a place of power, I can hear that. Um, so in my clients, sometimes when they come and 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 they're they're speaking from sort of high in their bodies, and they and they're very anxious and they're very you know they've got a lot on their mind. And sometimes when I was early on in my practice, I I made it like almost. Um, not a game exactly, but I made it sort of a project to, to try to get them to speak down 
into their bodies more by the time they're done with me, because that tells me that they have relaxed more and they've, you know, they're just, their body language changes and their sound or their voice changes. They're not really like, you know, really anxious. Like they're talking up here and they get mm -hmm. a little bit more relaxed. And at the end they're down here and they're like, Oh, so nice to meet you. I feel so much better now. Okay. Well, you know, see you next week. And you, you can probably hear the difference right, right in that. Yeah. So, so yeah, I guess so. What about when people lie? I, I had a friend that I could always tell when he was lying, if we talked on the phone because his oh, voice would drop. Ah, it sounds like he lied a lot, but he, <laughs> he was fibbing about something. I'd be like, you're lying. And he would always be like, how do you do that? How do you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, they say when you drop your voice, it's because you're trying to convince somebody of something. So I never thought about that that way. But now that you say that his voice mm, dropped, that that does make sense. That's consistent. That's good. Yeah. So I'm curious how you went from having aspirations of being a singer to being a lawyer, because I know there's <laughs> probably a lot that happened in between those two events. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, listen, I came to lawyering. Uh, I came to the practice and the study of law late in life, but um, along the way, the, you, there's always a framework. There's always, there's always kind of a framework. And, and I guess you'd say that when I was growing up, like we had a really fairly strong sense of justice and fairness to the point where if you see it happening and you, and you, like, I don't really know how to explain it, but, but I always felt like I, I, I needed to do something about it. Like I'm not a do-gooder and I'm not a rescuer, but when I see something that's not right, then I often feel compelled to make it right. So for example, when I was um, in, uh, let's say junior high and where I grew up, there are these beautiful sand dunes. And the problem with that is that under the sand dunes, they're very fragile, they, they go all over the place. And it's also a special kind of sand. Two things happen. They wanna take the sand away and make a special kind of glass out of it. And they also wanna drill under the sand to get to some oil reserves that are underneath of it. In the process, you destroy our state park. And that's, to me, that's not right. So a friend and I uh, canvassed all around our, uh, all around the, the entire city, really, it's a city of 8,000 people, but we went everywhere door to door and canvassed because we thought that that was not right. So was, I, I guess you'd say it's like, it's not really like lawyering that really grabbed me. It's, it's sort of um, um, act, like, like activism maybe. And, and Oberlin really kind of um, pounded that into me too, because there was, you, you couldn't swing a cat without hitting activism at, at Oberlin. Everybody is, is always protesting or demonstrating about something over there. And it just kind of gets into you and you're like, yeah, this is totally right. Like, hey, take to the streets. If you see something, say something kind of thing. And, uh, you know, that's, that was just like kind of where I was at as a person. And then it was just kind of casting around for this and that. And I sort of landed randomly more or less in New Jersey. And at that point I decided to settle down and I had a BA, but I noticed that people around me had higher degrees here. That's different than where I was before. Like if you had a college degree, then that was, that was something pretty special here and the Eastern seaboard you better have at least two or three degrees or you're like, yeah. either that or you're an entrepreneur or something. Um, so I just, I was in my thirties and I thought, man, what do I have time to do? Um, it would have been cool to be a veterinarian. Um, I love animals. Uh, mm -hmm. like, yeah, as you know, horses are my passion. Um, but that, but I graduated, like I say, with a degree in music. So I would have had to go back and do college all over again, then med school, da, 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 da. And I just did the math and I'm like, 
I'd be, I'd be retired by the time I was ready to open a veterinary practice with all the science and everything that you'd have to yeah. do. And, uh, so, okay, well, uh, you know, what's plan B. And, um, I thought, well, do I want to be like a psychologist? And then I thought to myself, you know, I, I just have this, this is going to sound weird, but I have this niggling thing. I just, I want to be able to make a, a, a good living. Like I want to be yeah. able to live well. well. That's practical. I mean, I think most of it was us very have practical. that concern. Yeah. So that was kind of a big step for me. And, and to be honest though, because where I come from, um, doing well is sort of like, it's almost frowned upon. Like it's mm. like, it's hubris. It's hubris yes. to be like, Oh, you're like, Oh, you've got a swimming pool. Who do you think you are? Kind of thing. Mm. So there a was lot a lot of people have that. Yeah. I'm learning that. And it, it's, it's very, very interesting. So even to have that little inkling, like, Oh, I want to live. I want to live. I, I don't want to, I don't even want to just not worry about my bills. I want to be able to just like live the life I want to live. And, and that's doesn't involve me getting into like a ridiculous amount of debt. It, it at least, I at least need, need to be able to create, you know, the, my standard of living. And so that was, I was ready for that. So I, I kind of looked around and I'm like, oh man, I really want to be an author. You know, I've, I've done a lot of writing. I like people. Uh, what can I do? And I thought, you know what? I'm going to take the LSAT. I bet you that'll be fun. <laughs> so, well, that, so had you ever thought about being a lawyer before that? No. Wow. That's funny because <laughs> no. people either say that they kind of fell into it accidentally, but a lot of people say they wanted to be a lawyer from the time they were a little kid. Yeah. I wonder if, if, um, if there are people who like, maybe they have it in their environment. Yeah. So like they're, yeah. maybe they're, they have friends or family who are already in, like who are already professionals at least. So did so you it, come from a blue collar background? Yeah. I wouldn't say it was blue collar. Although that if you look at a map, you would say, oh yeah, that's uh, definitely in the middle of uh, well, the Midwest, I guess. Um, my dad was a business owner. He was an interior designer and he had a second generation fine furniture store. And my mom would stay at home, although she went to college like perpetually because she just liked to enrich herself. Um, so in our very, 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 very small town, we had one of the big Victorian houses. Our version of diversity was across the street. I hope you're ready for this. Across the street, there was a Catholic girl. <laughs> she was she was Catholic. And they had fish on Fridays and it was just weird. And she went to CCD and we were friends anyway. That was like our, our version of diversity. But like, if you've seen the movie Fargo. Yes, I have. Watch it again. And that's where I, that's basically where I grew up. I hey, will. what that you doing, Marge? <laughs> yes, that was a good movie. You don't yeah. talk funny though. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> well, that's because I'm here. <laughs> when I go home, I pick up the accent. And when I, and when I talk to my mom on the phone, I can totally hear it. <laughs> but yeah, they definitely talk like that. So but yeah, how no. The, how the heck did you end up in Jersey? Oh, you know, went to college, met a boy. Ah, okay. <laughs> long story short, he's from Westfield and, you know, we've been married for a long time and yeah, it's a lot that, that in itself is another big, long, fun story, but I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. We're kind of skipping around a little bit, but that's okay. Yeah. It's all right. So you took the LSAT. I guess that went well. <laughs> yeah. I was very surprised. I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I mean, my version of the LSAT was like, you know, I'm not going to take these classes. I don't have a lot of money. I'm not going to like, I'm just going to pick up a book from Barnes and Noble and kind of flip through and see what the test looks like. And then I'm going to take the test. So like, that's exactly what I did. Wow. <laughs> I have that's new respect for you, Heather. <laughs> I actually studied. <laughs> Practice. I, didn't know, I didn't know how to study. 
I had no idea. I got into the middle of uh, law school before I figured that out. And I'm still not sure I quite know. So, so I said, okay, well, that's interesting. Well, you know what? I'm not worried about this because nobody gets into, oops, nobody gets into law school. All right. Well, I applied and I got into, uh, you know, Seton Hall and, and, uh, and Vermont Law School and all that. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I got into law school. <laughs> I guess somebody must see something. Well, you know, I'm not really worried because nobody gets past their first year. So I jump into my 1L and the first semester was, you might even, you might remember it or you might've blocked it out, but it was really intense. Yes. The first thing, one of the first things I learned is that you don't get your grades until you're done with the class. One test. Yeah. One test, which you take at the end of the semester. And then you sit at home, like biting your your fingers down to like little nubs waiting for the grades to come in. So you find out how you did. And well, I'm a procrastinator. So I loved that part, but <laughs> like put it off till the very end. <laughs> I was dying to know. And then, uh, so then my first, um, semester in one L I got the best GPA that I've ever gotten in my whole life. I was like, Hmm, that's interesting. Well, I must be doing something right. Well, now I have to keep going because I'm so in debt and I have to just keep going. And that, and that I just kept throwing it behind my shoulder and kept going on and on. Now, remember that daddy didn't have a law firm here and I didn't know anybody here particularly. Like I did not grow up here. So then from then on, I just made sure that I was, you know, I did moot core, I, you know, I did, uh, I got best brief and best oral uh, advocacy for appellate advocacy, best oralist and best brief. And uh, let's see, I did the family law clinic at this clin- the Center for Social Justice. I did a, an internship with uh, one of the judges in, in the, uh, Union County. Uh, later on, I went to clerk with her and she's now presiding in family in Union County. And then from there, I just, you know, I didn't know I was going to get into family law either. I had no idea. What I did re- learn along the way is that, you know, law is no joke. Like when you're in it, you're in it. It's, it's, it's like, it's very, it's so rich and so interesting and so engaging and so demanding. And it is such a life. And through the process of going through law school, I really started to get the fact that if, if this, like it's a lifestyle, it's not yeah. really even a profession. It's a, it, it is a lifestyle and you better really figure out something to connect to while you're doing that. If you don't already have, like some people already had that, like, oh, I'm doing IT or I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And some people were kind of floating around. And I thought to myself, man, this is so, this is so demanding. It's such hard work that, you know, I've got to find something that really, that I really connect with. And, um, and that's when I started, like the universe started, to, you know, responding to that. And before you know it, I'm in the, you know, getting into a clinic, that was my, that was my objective was to get into a clinic at this, at Seton Hall, because if you get that under your belt, then you have a credential that, you know, if, if you don't, if, if you don't already have a job going out, then you, that, that's good experience. And, but they have several clinics. So they have, you know, landlord tenant, they have family, they have this and that. And lo and behold, the family law clinic was the, was where I, I ended up. You, did you just land there or did you want to be there? No, I, I, I didn't. I'll tell you a secret. I've never told anybody this before. So this Uh-oh, is a everyone's going to know now podcast exclusive. I did not want to do family law. You I were against actively it. did not want to do it. And you know why? Why? Because it's the thing I'm most connected to. Mm, my parents were something. Yep. My parents were divorced. They divorced when I was 12. I will never forget the things that happened. Um, you know, I, I was, 
one of the most, those pivoting moments of my life was when the, now this is Michigan, so they have friend of the court instead of guardian ad litem. So the friend of the court came to my house and asked me the following question. Heather, would you like to live with your mother or would you rather live with your father? That's and a horrible question. It was the most, for 9,700 different reasons, that is not the question to ask anyone. <laughs> Were you alone with her or him? Um, well, I remember distinctly I was sitting on the floor. It was a her. On the, I was sitting on the floor in our music room near our piano. And uh, she had been ushered in by my mom. And she, and then I don't think my dad was even in the house at the time, but, but my mom like left us alone, you know, for the interview. And that's what she asked me. And I just, my 12 or 11 year old head just like exploded with just like, I didn't say it out loud, but I just like, it's like my head just filled with profanity. And I'm like, I don't want any of this to be happening. <laughs> do you understand? I don't want any of this to be happening. And I do not want to choose between my parents. I love them both. This, I, I, can't, I can't even believe this. I can't believe this is even happening. So then I tucked that back into the back of my, I, I swallowed that immediately inside my body and just kept it there. And apparently it's been sitting there the whole time waiting <laughs> for me to turn 36 and go to law school and say, okay, now is what you're doing. So what, yeah. Do you remember rem what you said to her? I did, that's what I, I took a, I took a beat because you don't swear where I grew up. And I said, I said exactly that. I said, I don't want any of this to be happening. And I want to live with them both. So what happened after that was um, joint legal custody and joint physical custody, which means <laughs> Monday, Tuesday here, Wednesday, Thursday there, mm. Friday here, Saturday, Sunday here, Monday, Tuesday here, Tuesday, Wednesday there. What day is it? Where's my backpack? <laughs> I see nothing's changed. That's how that routine has <laughs> yeah. been happening for a long time. That's very true. Did you, at the time, did you feel any preference to one parent? I was bonded with my mom because I thought that the reason that the divorce was happening was because of something that my dad had done. I was conflicted because I was bonded with my dad mm -hmm. from when I was really little. Mm -hmm. So it, that just set up a whole, a whole network of, of conflicts, just a and whole network of conflicts. I'm asking because this is something that happens all the time in our practice where we'll get a client or one party that will insist that they want the child interviewed and, I always feel so reluctant to ever put the child in that position because they love yeah. both parents. Is that what you were thinking? No, it's not what I was thinking, okay. but I can imagine people thinking that for sure. Yeah. First of all, if you're at that age, you're not going to understand the question. Okay. Like why, why would, I mean, think about that from the child's perspective. Why would anyone ask you to choose between your parents for any reason? Like, up until this moment, they've both been there for you. They are your life. And I don't care if it's like stay at home mom and dad comes home on Saturdays or whatever, you know, whatever the, the working arrangement is in your, in your mind as a child, you have two, two parents, two parents, and you will always have two parents. And to have someone mm -hmm. from the outside come in and suggest that perhaps you don't have two parents 
or you have to give one up or you have to choose the other one or you have to uh, say no to, to one of them or you have to hurt one of them or to, can you imagine, like, can you imagine? Like, because that's what it seems like to the child. That's from the child's perspective, sure. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, a, it's the most ridiculous question. At first I was just so annoyed by the question. Like that's the stupidest question I've ever heard. Like this is the dumbest question I've ever heard. I love them both. Like who? You were, you were smarter than them at the time. Yeah. The, the professionals. So, yeah, it was just, it was a tough position. And, you know, I've been a guardian ad litem and I've been the attorney for, you know, we do some guardianship work and things like that. And, and so I've been in that sort of position. And that is one of the reasons that I, I, I approach that conversation with just such an incredible sensitivity. You never want to say, you know, you never want to say like, oh, you've got to make any kind of a choice. Like, oh, for, for me interviewing those, you know, those kids or those, you know, is going to be, I just want to know what they're thinking and what they're feeling. I'm not even really going to ask them pointed questions, like, oh, ask them open-ended questions. And then they start to, they start to open up to you. And then you're the adults in the room. They should not be made, they should not be writing your report. You write your report you have a conversation with them on their level. The conversation that I had was not at that level. Yeah. It was like, you know, mm -hmm. but on the other hand, it light, it lit a fire in one of several fires, you know, in me that gives me that, that, you know, now that I'm looking back and kind of put, putting some of the pieces together tells me, you know, um, so for example, after I got done with my clerkship, then I went to uh, work with a really reputable matrimonial firm. And one of the partners was, I interviewed with two partners and uh, the litigation partner and the mediation partner. And, um, you know, the, the litigation partner, uh, you know, had all kinds of questions for me and everything. And that was fine. And then um, the mediation partner, you know, um, you litigate and you've mediated and the vibe is very different when you're in the presence of a mediator than when you're, it's, it's almost like a almost like a, a, a very sort of nurturing, almost like a, and it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman, it can be like a nurturing sort of almost like a feminine vibe. They just, they kind of want to know what's going on with you. They want to know like more of your backstory. So when I, when I interviewed then, you know, the question was, um, why do you want to practice family law? Why family law? And in that moment, one of my other defining moments, I heard myself say, I was 12 when my parents were divorced and I never forgot it. And that was the interview. Wow. That was it. <laughs> and I thought, wow, <laughs> I may have just found a purpose, you know, maybe not my only purpose, but it, it landed, it, it landed for me to the to, to such a point where even though, you know, we all have sort of here's and there's in our careers and we have first jobs and second jobs and, you know, firms and, you know, clerkships and, and you meet people and you work with people and everything and, and everybody's got their professional journey. Then when I, when I did leave that firm eventually after about three and a half years or so, and I went out on my own and I had no idea at that point, I had no idea. I had worked myself into a paste and I had no idea what was I, what I was going to, I didn't even know if I was going to practice, to be honest, wasn't really sure. Were you getting burnt out? I was burnt out. I, I'll, I'll, I'll say it this way. I burned myself out. And how long I, had you been practicing at that point? Um, I had a, a year clerkship and then, uh, I was, I was there for three and a half years. Do you think that you were allowing yourself to get too emotionally involved in your cases? I, I was really having a hard time, uh, making that boundary like creating really that boundary between, you know, empathizing 
and, and doing your job as an attorney. You know, yeah. you, you have to, over time I've learned, and, and this is how I, I, I practice now, but at the time I was just a baby lawyer. I didn't know anything. I, I, I was a person first, you know, like, you know, he came into law at 36. You know, I, I'm just, I'm just here trying to sympathize and empathize with people, which I did very well. And I was great in mediations, but it was like, it was a mishmash, you know, like my feelings about people who would come to me with these problems. And then I, I would feel, yeah, you're right. I, I get, yeah, you're right. I would feel them too much. I felt them too much. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to be effective as a, as the lawyer right? when you're emotionally involved with the outcome and how the parties are feeling. Because I think that I did that too when I mm -hmm. first started practicing. I think I got emotionally involved with mm -hmm. the clients. And in some ways that was good. In some ways it wasn't though, because I felt that same experience of burnout. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think you can sustain that burnout years is years and years for sure. Burnout is is real. It's very very real, and you know we we know that lawyers suffer from burnout a lot for very for for various reasons. I think in, in family law, it can be especially pronounced. Mm -hmm. The things that we're dealing with are very they're messy. Yeah, and it's something that we can all relate to. You know, so it, it it's like. It's one thing to be defending a DWI. It's another thing to be, you know, defending a patent. It's another thing to be, you know, doing environmental law. You get down to family and you'll find that they're, you're either in it or you're not. You know, you talk to, I'm sure you have this, do you talk to people and they have, they're like, oh my God, I would never do family law. Oh my oh, gosh, yes. I, I, don't, I don't know how you do it. I don't know. Yes, how I hear that all the time. Frankly, I feel the same way about criminal law, like criminal defense. Like, how do you do that? Like, if you don't win, <laughs> like they're going to jail or worse, you know? Well, you know what? You, you didn't put them there, though. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Although that's kind of bad because exactly. that, that's an assumption that they're all guilty. <laughs> Good point. That's yeah, so that's why we're not clearing. That's why we're not criminal law attorneys. So, yeah. Yeah. So did you feel like this is like we're going like real deep here, like, um, you know, psychotherapy, but... <laughs> And, and maybe this is way off. I'll let you tell me. Do you feel like you were in some odd subconscious way trying to redo the divorce <laughs> or save little Heather? Yeah. Um, redo the divorce. Maybe, maybe, because I do find myself like thinking about how the divorce and like almost like clinically, like how did the, that divorce happen? Was 50, 50 really the right thing to do? Uh, you know, how could this have been like, how did like the physical separation happened in a weird way, you know, and, and I think about like, when I work with my clients, like how to problem solve, like, how do you tell your children? Do you move out? Do you have the conversation? Do you do this? So I do, I, I do go back and I do replay sort of like what it was like to have the separation, which happened when I wasn't home. That happened when I wasn't home. So, you know, I've, I've kind of taken it from the psychological and, and, to, and put that into like my, my professional um, life. But so um, when yeah. you say you weren't home, though, do you mean you just came home one day and your dad was gone? No, I was at an eight week camp. And I got a phone call. <laughs> from my mother who said that she was now living in an apartment and the and the way it the, it was it was phrased as though um 
it was just another set of conflictions. Like this is the thing that teaches you about he said, she said. The yeah. two varied. As an adult, I came back to these issues with my dad because there were certain things about what had happened during that time that I just could I just couldn't. I ran for a lot of years. I'm just gonna leave it there. I ran, I ran for a lot of years. And then at that towards the end of his life, I circled back and I said, let's okay, whoa. <laughs> let's now just talk about what happened and talk about you know how that affected like me and you know and my brothers and and so forth and and uh, he told me some stories that i ha- i was not in any way privy to and it was it, it changed my perception it, it broadened my perception of what was going on it helped me grow from you know that 11 year old 12 year old to an adult person and, and it also broadened my practice because as you know like people will come in and they will tell you exactly from their perspective, yes, and they're not wrong. It's just from their perspective, um, and and there's the story is much broader and more complex. And yeah, for sure, in family law, especially early on, I I, I felt I felt like the the urge to repair. I just wanted to repair. So so, and I know what you're thinking. Then why are you in divorce law? Because that's not repairing at all. What I what I wanted. Oh, I to, think it is actually. It 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 absolutely is. It absolutely is it is the one thing that i did come away from my parents divorce from was that people some people really should get divorced yes that was not a mistake it was Mm -hmm. i didn't want it at the time like as a child Mm -hmm. but the but the from the now from the adult perspective 100 percent some people need to be divorced that that divorce needs to happen and we've seen it over and over again in our clients, how much better they're doing afterwards. But they Even resist with, it so much. Yeah. Well, well yeah, sure. I mean, it's a, it, you have to grieve. You have to give yourself permission to do it in the first place. A lot of times there are a lot of societal and, uh, you know, family pressures for you to stay the same. There's that myth that says if you stay the same, the children will be better for it. That's not necessarily true. The science is not bearing that out. And we've seen it in our clients, what happens to your clients, even after you start the process. And they're just like, oh, gosh, somebody's giving me permission to, you know, to attend to myself for once. And, and if I can be a better self, then I can be a better mom and I can be a better dad. But I can tell you this, as long as we're together in the same house, we're not being good parents. We're not being good people. We're not being good to each other. And whether or not they can express that like that, you know, almost bar none that's that those when i'm when i'm consulting with someone there that's where they are they're just like most of the most of the people that i see are like look i don't want to kill anybody it's just that i just need this to be over i just i just need this like we've tried and i don't want to hurt anybody but this just needs to happen and then that that's where that's where my like engine starts to kick in and i say okay great we're going to make this happen we're not hurting anybody we're not, you know, we're going to create another life for you. We're going to make sure that the other, you know, I hate to say like the other side, like it's an, yeah. I, I really don't look at it as an, I, I, it makes me sad when it becomes adversarial. Um, it's just basically the, it can be a few things, but it can be um, the most obvious one is like the death throes of a marriage. So when you really, when you do start to come apart, then you start getting nasty with each other. It's part of the grieving process. Well, there's it, no trust either at, by that point. Yeah. Yeah, this is true. So it, it sort of is almost like the person that you're living with has become an adversary. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. I guess that's right. Exactly. Because the partnership is not a partnership anymore. That's right. Yeah. Now and it's like something different. You know, I heard something really brilliant from, you're going to be surprised who I'm going to say, Miley Cyrus. Mm. She said. Do tell. <laughs> she said that what's really tragic about a relationship ending and, and what makes it so sad is not that the relationship ends, but it's that period of time where you kind of know it should end, but you don't end it and you stay. And then yeah. you start to be miserable because you yeah. know you're in something that you don't want to be in. And, and that's really when that adversarial thing starts to happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's, that's pretty cool to think about. It was pretty profound. Yeah, that is. To say, and I, I don't know, I probably shouldn't say that. I don't know Miley. So, um, (laughs) you know, I don't know why I was surprised that something that profound came from her, but (laughs) it was pretty smart. And I think really true. She's an old soul. (laughs) I think so. I think she is. So, um, I, can you speak to that? Because I know that that's something I observe so much and have people come into my office and, it's almost like they're looking for somebody. Maybe it's me. I don't know who it is. Maybe it's the other spouse to give them permission to leave. Amen. That's exactly right. That's, that's what I find once. In fact, sometimes I even say that out loud to them, to the client. Sometimes I do. If they feel, if, if I feel like they're really, really stuck, I'll say, you know, you have permission to, to do this. If this is what, if this is what you're, if this is what you're feeling, then it's okay. I try to, de- de- I mean, the idea is to destigmatize it. It's the stigma from wherever it's coming from, whether it's, yeah. you know, name your source. Yeah. But there's a reason that you're staying together. I mean, look, if you took your hand and you stuck it on a hot stove, what would you do? Pull it away. Unless there was something keeping it there. So, yeah. So if, if, you know, these people are, they are, they're, they're in pain, but they're being, there's, there's still something there that's, you know, kind of pressuring them to be, to stay together. And they, they have a hard time. I mean, it's like, it's almost like having a blind spot. So, you know, I, I try to normalize it. I try to be as, when I first started practicing, I guess, I, I guess I thought that like getting divorced is a big deal. Right. And I think that 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 vibe kind of rubbed off and it, it made me actually kind of tired after a while. Like, oh, yeah, divorce. Oh, yeah, you really should get, you know, if you're going to get divorced, like we'll be right here for you and everything. And it, like it, it came, became a thing. And then as I as I practice more and more, I was like, you know what? Yes, divorces happen. It becomes talk aboutable. Yeah. OK, great. You're going to get to maybe you will. Maybe you won't. Let's talk about it. Like, what does it look like? Let's get the whiteboard out. OK, so let's talk about what's what's your future plan going to be? What are you going to do? You think you're going to work? Do you want to stay where you are? And this is where I this this conversation is where I start to hear that that first strategy session is where I really start to first hear what's underlying everything. And I also learned that people know that the spouses know each other really well. If you give them permission to kind of speak freely, like, oh, I know he's going to want the house because he's such a homebody. And, you know, his whole he's got like 18 people in his immediate family and I have three and I'm from, you know, Maine and he's from, you know, here and he's got an immigrant family or whatever that has that value system. Um, And and I just don't. Yeah, I'm kind of a loner. Um, So, you know. So you get to learn a whole lot about the family and the family dynamics. And when you start to get them to look to the future, that's when they really start loosening up and saying, 
oh yeah, wow, I could have a really nice apartment. Well, yeah, well, you put it, you know what? I've always wanted an apartment in Jersey City. Have you seen those brownstones? They're really nice, you know, and that you start getting into that. And then you're, I'm, then I'm like, okay, now I, I know I'm doing the right thing because they're all they're already in that forward in that forward motion. Well, it's been in there all along. Yeah, kind of know what they want, right? Yeah, I feel like creating a safe space. I don't want this to sound like woo woo, but if you if you can create that container for them to to just explore some of these thoughts, then they put themselves in a in a forward motion. You know, if if they really really don't want it then they're going to shy away from that. And then maybe they'll come back later or maybe they won't, you know, I, I like to work with people who are, who are going to be, you know, as it were the, the plaintiff it's, you know, that I'll tell you what, that I don't know what your hardest uh, kind of client is. My most difficult kind of client is the person who doesn't want the divorce. That's hard, but that can be hard when you represent the one who does want the divorce. If the other person on the other side doesn't want the divorce because it just drags. (laughs) It drags, it drags. And then the person who wants it is like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Yes. Person, why is this taking so long? And yeah. Why and is then this taking so long? when you think you're done, it's like, oh, but what about, what about this mug? We never talked about this mug. <laughs> this mug is very right. important to me. <laughs> um, and I don't mean to, I'm not laughing to make fun, but it, it happens all the time. Yeah. So when I have a case that just won't seem to end and every time you think you're done, there's some new issue. Mm-hmm. I question which one of you doesn't want, really want to do this. Oh, it's that, it's that last little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the like, last little it's thread. Done, it's done. It's done. Mm-hmm. Right. Although I have to say, sometimes I wonder is maybe it's not that they still want to be married to the person. I think there are some people that are just so uncomfortable making a decision that once it's done, it really is done. It's final. That means it can't change anything. They can't change their minds. They can't second guess. Well, maybe I should have, maybe I shouldn't have settled, you know, for the house, or maybe I should have gotten more here. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think you really put your finger on it. I mean, it's definitely a sense of insecurity. Yeah. Right? So, so you have that last little bit, like you're like, we all have those clients, all of us family law people out there have those clients and they just don't get divorced. Some of them have been divorced for years and they're not divorced. Yes. <laughs> Some of them have never been married and there's not, then they're still there. They may as well be because, because they just won't stop engaging with each other. You know, they just cannot, they just can't, you know, it's familiar. Restrain, you know, restraining order is the same thing. They, they just can't leave it. They just can't drop it. They yeah. cannot leave it alone for whatever it is. They're still, they're still, I mean, they say engaged for a reason. Like they're still engaged. They are. With still each in other. It. Yeah. So, so I think that it's like, yeah, especially if they've got children too, right? What do you think about the people that will get divorced, but then they'll have some kind of arrangement where they just still live together in the house indefinitely. And they <laughs> always say it's for the kids. Always. <laughs> I don't believe that. I have a hard time believing that. Yeah. It almost makes me think like maybe they just have an issue with intimacy because then do do those people like get boyfriends and girlfriends after that? Or, you know, how does that work? Like, I don't know. Like, I don't, maybe they just, maybe they make good partners, but they just don't make like, maybe they make good like roommates and, and, and sort of partners and, and, you know, they can get the kids to karate and whatever, but, but they just don't want to be together. Like, because there is that, I mean, obviously there, there is that other level to any marriage 
you know, you see it, whether you, whether they're married or not, any that it's the couple, it's yeah. that connection that you get when you're in high school and you see the one who makes your heart go like that. Mm-hmm. There's that level of connection. And then on top of that is a marriage, which is an institution. And if you're lucky, they go together and, yeah. you know, they kind of squirm around a little bit, but for the most part, they're, they're pretty much together. And then if you lose one, but there's so many, I, I think, you know, what it is, is I, I think that we would be shocked to know how many people are, are basically living separate and apart in their own houses and they're still married. Yes. Yes. So many. And the reason, you know, the, one of the reasons I know that is because when I'm consulting with people and they're like, and then they'll just casually say like, oh yeah, we've, I've been living in the guest room for three years. I'm like, what? Or the basement. We're separated. Yeah. I live in the basement. <laughs> That's not yeah. separated. Or they, or you get a lot of people that say, we're just roommates. Yeah. Or they haven't had sex in 10 years. Right. Yeah. So you've lost that component. I mean, and then there's probably one that's even in the middle where it's like, okay, here's the, like the hot and heavy stuff. And then here's the best friend stuff. Like let's meet at the diner and spend all night eating French fries. And then here's the one who knows how to balance the checkbook and pay the mortgage. Yeah. And you put them all together and hopefully that, you know, you get all those pieces together and it's, it's not, you know, it's still a little squiggly, but that's, I guess, more or less of a functioning marriage when they all, all those cylinders are firing, but you lose one or two and it starts to get a little bit weird. Yeah. <laughs> I like your analogy. <laughs> well, I have to say it's um, striking to me how self-aware you are. And I know personally from talking to you that you've engaged in a lot of coaching. Mm-hmm. So can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. So when did you start coaching? So when I was a solo practitioner, it occurred to me that um, I probably wasn't doing everything right. So I found a coach and at the time I thought it was kind of a lot of money. It turns out in the coaching world, that's not a lot of money at all. But this person was like, oh yeah, you know, you really should, uh, you know, have a handbook and this and that. And I thought, oh, this is such grown up stuff. And then I just kind of dropped off and I, and, but then it bubbled up again. I'm like, no, 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 I want to grow. I, I want to like, I want to have a firm. I don't want to just have a solo practice. I want to have a firm. So then I, in about 2018 or so, I engaged a, like a business coaching person. And what I learned, that was hard. And I'll tell you why. Because there's no reflection on the, the coaching person or the program or anything else. I wasn't ready. Yeah. I was not. What's that saying? When the student is ready, the teacher appears. Yeah. Well, I forced the teacher to show up a little early <laughs> in my student case. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. <laughs> yeah. So I scared the living, you know what, out of myself. I, I learned a lot, but uh, what I was learning was just creating um, chaos in myself because I hadn't like there was like, we've been talking for a little while now and you kind of get an idea. There was a whole lot of junk in there mm-hmm. and it was all working at Which cross we purposes. all have. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do believe that that's you just know what yours is now. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> well, at least some of it, not some all of it. it. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but in that fabric, I, the, I just, it was, you know, chaotic is like the first word that I thought of. And, and I just, it, it just, it created more of a problem for me than it solved. So I thought to myself, mm. oh my God, like, oh my God, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm never going to do this. And I, I never backed off of it, but it was just like, oh, I was so frustrated, so frustrated. And then my coaching person comped me a ticket to an event 
that I know I'm pretty sure you've been to um, in Atlanta. Now, mind you, I never flew anywhere. We can mention them if you want to. Okay. Well, it was David Nagel event, Artist Success Summit. We all love that. Yes. I had never heard of David Nagel. I didn't know who he was. And I had no idea what he was about. And I had never flown myself anywhere, much less Atlanta. And uh, so I, you know, and at that point, you know, I, I got comp to ticket and, um, and I went there and, uh, I, you know, I was like, well, you know, as long as I'm comp to ticket, I, I guess I have, I have to go. Right. So I have to go. So I, I do got on an airplane and went, you know, went down there. I had, got the hotel room, which I also didn't do in, an, in a nice hotel, which I also didn't do. Like was, There's so many things that I wasn't doing at that point. And I sat there. It was a three day thing. And I sat there and I didn't, I didn't, wasn't expecting anything. I was hoping it wasn't like a multi-level marketing thing. <laughs> like I'm not going to walk out with like a timeshare or selling Amway. Or yes. like <laughs> selling Mary Kay. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, you know, long story short, um, little did I know that when he started talking, I like, I started to have to pick my jaw up off the ground. I was like, Oh, <laughs> oh, okay. That makes a little more sense. Oh, right. I know that from when I was, you know, this high. Oh, I experienced that as a such and such, you know, aged person. And it just, it was just three days of things just like dropped in and dropped in and dropped in and dropped in. And I didn't know what to do with myself. I just didn't know. I just didn't know what to do with myself. Were you feeling excited? Were you feeling was it overall positive or were you feeling like anxiety? How well, I mean, it's like, uh, it was like, you know, it was like the old, you know, opening the door. It was like a door opening to something that I didn't even know what it was. Um, I didn't know what to do with it, but I knew that it was the beginning of something. So I had to grab the thread and pull. So I pulled and, uh, and, and, uh, it was amazing. It was just like, a, it was a really great experience. Like so much, so much, like just so much just really dropped in and started healing for me. And I thought, Ooh, this is important. I have to figure this. I have to figure out, I have to figure out how to get more of this basically. <laughs> so, you know, I don't have that kind of money. <laughs> I promise you, I have not, I, I don't have that kind of money. I talked to their people anyway. Um, you know, and over time I found it, um, you mean for and the coaching packages? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, who, who spends that kind of money? Well, I learned, I learned who spends that kind of money. Um, and, uh, so, so, you know, when did I start coaching? That's sort of my, like my coaching path. Um, and then along the way I, I, I found this coach and you know, I kind of slot them into different slots. Right. So he's my, my, my mind coach, my mindset mm -hmm. coach, you know, he's, he's like the person he's one of the, he's the person who, who got me and, you know, he's got a bunch of people like, um, that, that has been associated with him. So like he coaches coaches, you know, yes. this is like this whole family tree of people. Right. And so I, I kind of made a promise to myself. I didn't realize that, but as I looked around the room and I saw the banners and, you know, they always have these banners, like such and such a person did such and such a thing within such and such. Like she made $6 million in five months and you can too. And this person, you know, opened her own, you know, whatever. And, and, uh, five months, you know, a year later, she was living in a mansion. You can do this too. I yeah. mean, it wasn't this like, went from food stamps to, uh, <laughs> master of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. And I was looking around and I thought, I thought to myself, wow, look at those people. Look at them. Just look at them. And uh, a little spark went off in my head. And I said, look at those people on those banners. 
like they they're real people and they do these things. I mean, it, 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 they're not fake people. We know these people. <laughs> we know them. It's not fake. Anyway, so um, so then um, that's when I just started to realize that I was going to have to unravel a lot of things before I was going to be able to get anywhere in my life um, based on where I'd been and what I was made of at the time. And so that's when I started my like kind of personal coaching uh, journey. So I just sort of, you know, as I looked around in the banners, I was noticing, like, I got to know these people, you know, they're, they're in the industry, they're, they're coaches, they, they run programs, they do this or that, they're, you know, they actually exist in the, in the world. So um, I kind of made a little bit of a promise to myself that I would try really hard to preserve that uh, kind of that, that way of thinking, the, the, you know, the stuff that he teaches and everything, and that I didn't want to go astray by, you know, bright, shiny object. Okay. It was just, I just made a promise to just kind of sit in this for as long as I could. And as luck would have it, there's a whole community that, that sort of sprouts around what he's, what he teaches, not, not him particularly, but you know, a lot of people are associated with him, but the, but these teachings are, they're all over the place and, and a lot of people engage in them. So as I progressed, um, I, I came, I realized that there were resources available to me that were in that same sort of uh, ilk, right? So I needed somebody to prop up my business to help me to help me develop my actual business. The law um, firm. The law firm itself, right? Can I ask you a question though? At that time, did you feel like there was a big disconnect between or a disparity between what you thought you could actually have and what you really wanted? Well, to that I'm gonna say only recently have I really started to think about what I want at all. For years, I mentioned before, I've been running. So yeah. I was running, running, running. And then I went to law school. That's outside pressure to do, to do, to do, to achieve, achieve, achieve. You stay up, you study, you, you break yourself, you, you, you get the grades and you, you do this and you, you, know, you get onto law review and you, know, you, just, you just kill yourself to do all these things. And at the end, you're like, oh, you know, I ran the gauntlet and here I am. And what's missing in all of that is what do I want? What do I want? And the partner to what I want is not, you'd think it's what, what do I think I can have? That turns out not to be it. It's what am I worth having? Mm -hmm. It's about self-worth. Am I worth a banner in David Nagel's thing? Am I worth having a million dollar law firm? Am I even worth having amazing attorneys working with us? Am I worth a cool leather jacket? Am I worth a challenger as my new car? And I started saying yes. Did you get the challenger? I have, I drive a challenger. I do. Yep. You deserve it. It turns out it's true. I had no idea. So there was, I thought you were going to ask, like, is, was there a big gulf in um, kind of where you were and what's possible? And I would say that is like, at the time was like larger than the ocean. <laughs> I just didn't see that at all. Like I didn't see it. David often says that <clears throat> when he asks people, what do you want? A lot of people don't know. Well, they'll say they don't know. Say they don't know. And then he'll say, do you, whatever you are saying that you want, is it because that's really what you want? 
Or is it because that's what you think that you can have? Because what you really want, you're like, I'm, I can't, I'm not even going to try for that because that's not going to work. And you know, our clients yeah. do this. How often do you have a conversation with a client who I'll ask them, okay, just tell me how much alimony do you think that you need? Oh, he'll never agree to that. He'll never agree to that. <laughs> and I'm like, forget about him. Okay. Just, just forget about him. Mm-hmm. Just tell me if, if we knew that he was going to say yes, tell me what you would want. And then mm-hmm. that's always a different conversation. For sure. Right. So, yeah. In fact, that's, that's one of the magic moments that I love during the consults and I'll do this with a marital residence sometimes like, okay, well, you know, what, what would you like to have happen with a marital residence? Oh, he'll never let me have that. I couldn't afford it. I can't refinance and that, you know, whatever, whatever. All and, the no's. All the no's come pouring out. And I'll say, sometimes I'll say over and over again. Sometimes I'll kind of make it a catchphrase. Bob is not invited to this conversation. Oh, I like that. Yes. And I'll just let that sit for a minute. <laughs> and then I'll ask again, what would you like to have happen with the house? And sometimes people will say, Oh my God, it's got six bedrooms. What the, what am I going to do with this? I'm a, I don't even, it's got a roof and I don't even, I don't know how to mow the lawn. I don't want, you know what I, and this is where you get, you know what I would really, a little place in Montclair would be so nice. Just a little apartment, you know, just big enough for me and maybe a couple, you know, two, three bedrooms, whatever. And that's when you start to get like, that's when you get that. Yeah, exactly. That's when you start, you start hearing what they actually are wanting. And I think that, you know, we go through life forgetting about what we want and instead performing, right? So playing roles, right? So, so part of me going to law school, like part of it was, was I kind of wanted it. And then when I got into the sort of the thick of the fray of it, there was a bunch of stuff I didn't want to do, but I did anyway. And that's, you know, that's the role play kind of thing. And then I got out, you know, my, my clerkship was, was a blast. I really liked that. And then I got to the firm and some of it I loved and some of it I didn't. And then as it, as time went on, the stuff that I didn't, the, the stuff that didn't, didn't jive with what I, what it was that I wanted became more and more and more. And that's, I guess that's one way to look at why I left is that it just was not, it wasn't, it was incongruent, just mm-hmm. wasn't what I wanted. Right. But, but yeah, it, it's a scary question when people, you know, what do you want? What do you want? Oh, me? What, what, wait, do I get to want something? <laughs> like, let's just start on the premise, <laughs> you know, like. Sometimes you can look at your life and question, well, you know, everything that I have now and, and where I am, did I want that? Did I really want that? Or did this all just happen? <laughs> and that's how we end up in your office, Christina. How did, how did we get here? You know, I think a lot of people though, that's right. say that. What, what's one of those, um, those postcards that go around Facebook, you know, they're very wise. Those, all those postcards that are floating around (laughs) social media. And it says, everything you have now was once something that you wanted. Yeah. Was it really though? Maybe. (laughs) I'm not so sure about that. So I don't know, maybe, maybe the lesson there is to be more deliberate about where you're going. Cause sometimes we get ourselves out of one situation Mm -hmm. and get ourselves into another Mm-hmm. But it's not that we really wanted the new situation. Right. It's just that it was a better alternative to the thing we got out of. 
Yeah. And the funny thing is if you're not paying attention, you can end up in the same exact position, mm. just in a different location. So <laughs> many people do you know get divorced and then end up in another relationship right away? And yeah. I'm always like, why? Yeah. Give yourself some time. Yeah. Figure out who you are and what you want. Mm -hmm. Well, we're not going to solve all of the world's problems today in this podcast. Maybe not today. We can hear a little more about you. So you started you, well, let's back up a little bit. So you had the three and a half year burnout. <laughs> yeah. It took me a while. I, well, actually, I was real, I, five years. I have to say like, I'm a real trooper when it comes to burning out. Like I know people burn out quicker than that, but it took me a little while. Did your, your burnout took longer than I've that? I had always heard when I went into family law that there was a five year burnout rate. Oh, okay. And I found that to be kind of true. It was probably around five years that I started to get like, this is, do you think it was because your environment, like in other words, if you had been able to do it like completely on your own terms, do you think it would have been different? Well, that's an interesting question because I ended up going solo three years after that. And mm -hmm. I do think things were a little easier when I could do things on my terms. Mm -hmm. It was easier, mm -hmm. but the nature of family law doesn't change no matter where you are and what you're doing, who you're working for. Yeah. I think you just develop different frameworks, frameworks from which to look at. I mean, once you, if you're committed to family law, you really just need to find a framework that you, that, that works for you. That's not going to, you know, grind you into a paste over time. So how did you get out of that burnout mode? <laughs> or did well, you? <laughs> yeah, right. You're making like a lot of assumptions over there, Miss Previtt. All right. So, um, after I, I just left, I had no plan to go anywhere. And I did the proverbial, you know, lay on the couch for two weeks. And the thing that popped up for me was like, well, you have worked so hard. You have worked so hard to get where you are. You got yourself through law school. You got yourself through your clerkship, your internship, your clerkship, this, the, the, you wrote onto the journal, you did the, the family law clinic, you, you know, you powered your way through a really, a really decent, a very good firm. Um, and, and, and here you are and you have a license and you paid a lot of money for it, by the way. And are you going to just throw that over your shoulder? And the answer was no. So I said, okay, well, I don't know what's going to happen from here. But so I got up off the couch and I put on my, my hoodie sweatshirt and I sat down at the dining room table and I thought, you know what? Here we go. I don't know what's, I don't know what this is going to look like. So I'm going to pick a name for my firm that's pretty vague. <laughs> it has to have my name in it. Keith Law Firm, LLC. Ha! I got it. And you were working for someone else still at, when this happened? No, I, I, was, I dropped out. Oh, you had quit. Yeah, I quit. So you didn't have a job. I had no job. So you quit because of the burnout. I did. What did you, what was your plan? Were you just like, I can't do this anymore. I've got to find some other job. I was, no, no, only, only the first part. Wow. That is really <laughs> ballsy. <laughs> how can I ask how old were you at the time? I was 42, <laughs> 43. Okay. Wow. That's ballsy. So were you married? Mm-hmm. Okay. So was money a concern? Because <laughs> most people would be like, well, yes. and see, I would do something like that too, right? Just be yeah. in the moment. 
Yeah. Fuck this. I'm not doing this anymore. It was <laughs> just quit. It was be like later, like, <laughs> well, I guess I have to find a job. <laughs> well, sadly, it wasn't that impulsive. It was a long road towards some really like health issues, mental health issues. I mean, it it was a re- it was real classic burnout. It like it was a real burnout. So it wasn't like, oh, you know, F this shit, like we're out of here. Like, you know, it wasn't like quitting your restaurant job. (laughs) It was was like, it was long, you know, it was long drawn out. Um, So, so by the time, by the time I left, there wasn't any other choice. If I'd have stayed, it would have gotten real bad. You know, it was like crying in the parking lot, you know, the whole nine yards. It was like, I, I was on the phone with my husband, like, probably two, three times a week during the day saying, please talk me down. Please talk me down. Please talk me down. So was this something you had both discussed that it was time to quit? I told him, look at me. (laughs) Or did you just go home one day and say, something interesting happened today at work? No, I gave them tons of notice. Okay. You did. Okay. I did. I gave them a lot of notice and then they forgot I was leaving and I had to remind them (laughs) and they asked me to stay and I had to say no and leave. (laughs) Did you actually on good terms with them? Yeah. uh, Yeah, I think we did. Um, And in fact, it was one of the first times I ever put my, uh, it was one of the first times that I ever really um, stood up for myself in that, in that situation, because the pressure to stay, like there was pressure to stay. And I, I kind of heard myself say, no, February 14th is the day that I gave. And February 14th is the day that I'm leaving. Good for you. So if you were so miserable, why was you, why did you have this idea to start a firm? (laughs) Didn't you want to just get out of law or did you think you could make it better if you were your own boss? I did want to get out of law. I, I, I thought about it. That's what I was thinking about for those two weeks on the couch. I was like, I can't do this again. I can't do this. I can't, I cannot imagine a place where I could do this again. I'm not going to another firm. I'm not doing family law. I don't even know if I'm going to practice at all. Maybe I'll go work for LexisNexis. That seems fun. That's yeah. where a lot of people go when they're in that position. I know. I know. And at the end, at the end, you know what it was? It was the other, the, the thing that bubbled up for me was like, I still have so many questions about what I saw while I was there. And I want to find out, I want to explore that. I want to find out some answers to those questions. Does litigation destroy families? Is collaborative law a thing? Do we, does it have to be this way? Is there another way? So many things like, you know, you you could go into the, into the details, but I'm just saying like over the course of three and a half years, so many things I saw just about every aspect of it. I wanted to know, was it, was it true? What I just saw, was this, was this true? Is this the way it has to be? And there was an there was a voice inside me that just said no. This is not the way it needs to that it does not have to be that way. I don't know how it can be, but it doesn't have to be that way in any case. So I thought, well, all right, let's fire it up and see what happens. Do you think that you got burnt out just because that's the way things are or do you think that it was hard for you because you were thinking about your parents' divorce? Well, I mean, there's a little bit of that, but um, to be honest, I will take an active, you know, a responsibility for my active role in my own burnout. So I worked 
I worked and worked and worked and worked and I had no boundaries and I just would work. And, um, you know, I wasn't billing properly. I wasn't, I wasn't understanding the cases properly, but my ethic was to work. So I, I had like two basic skills. I, I can work, which, which up until then seemed to be working, you know, <laughs> like you work for law school and you do, all, you do all the reading and all the stuff and you do all the work and that's good. And you go to your clerkship and they need you to do a bunch of stuff and you do a bunch of stuff and you work hard and you stay late and they like you. Well, it turns out when you get to a firm, you can't just work because they expect you to grow. In fact, one of the, the comments on the way out is like, I don't know what happened. I thought you were going to be a partner. And I thought to myself, here's where I was at the time. I was like, partner? Me? Are you kidding me? I can barely even understand the cases. Like, like, like it, it even went beyond that. It wasn't even about, I don't have the skill set. It was like, me? Be like a, a, a partner? Like, are you crazy? There's something wrong with you. <laughs> There's something wrong with you that you would see partner material in me. And lo well, and behold. Was that a self-worth issue? 100%. 100%. Low self-worth, boundary issues. And like, also, you know, you can throw in like, it's bad to ask for help because it makes you seem weak. You can, you can throw in like the, the clients are like, they'll walk all over you if you let them, especially at that level of practice. Uh, you know, the higher value clients will, will, they'll, they'll walk all over you because just because they can. Um, and yeah, I just, I was just very, just, I was just very like intellectually, I was all there. And then emotionally and self-worth wise, I was not there at all. So I didn't, I just didn't have the skills to protect myself. So then again, help me understand why it was such a good idea to start your own law firm. I mean, we know we're all worked out, but I'm curious, <laughs> why did you start the law firm then at that point? Did you I, have a, a second, um, you know, second a second wind? wind? <laughs> yeah. Like I said, yeah, seriously. It was like a second wind. Like it came like, all the stuff that I was ruminating around in that time that I was like not doing anything, you know, um, I, I just, one of my questions was like, what was that? Um, and you know, it, it comes back to like, does it have to be that way? So, you know, also, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, um, going all the way back to why we started this out in the first place is that I kind of want to be comfortable financially. You know, at least, you know, I, I had I, the, the vague idea that it would be so great to be able to, you know, rent a car or, you know, buy new shoes or whatever. Um, and just kind of put that together. And I was like, I, I started to just remember some of the things that got me to take the LSAT in the first place. Yeah. I thought none of that is gone. Like it's all still there. Mm -hmm. And if I, and if I just completely switched course again, I'm like, we, you know, we could go on for a long time about where I was before I went to law school, but I've gone here, there, here, there, here, there, up, down, sideways. And I've done a lot of different things. And I was, and I had made the commitment to stay in one lane. So that, pro that commitment, that promise that I had made to myself right before I took the LSAT came through and said, look, you said you were going to do this. Are you going to let this experience, experience control you? Or do you still have more questions that you still had when you first took the LSAT? Can I do this? Is justice achievable? You know, are there people out there who need your help? Can you, can you do it? Can you do it? Well, obviously and, uh, we know the answer. Yeah. I mean, I just, it just, 
I guess, I guess that's, I, I guess I just wanted to, you know, you wanted, I guess I wanted to do it. <laughs> it's just something that I wanted. I wanted to see if I could do it. I wanted to see if I could do it on my own terms. And so then I, so then I was, uh, I started out doing like a general practice, you know, um, jury, like I said, like a jury trial, I was doing workers comp, tax appeals, this and that, a couple of family law cases here and there. And then, but you know, it didn't take probably about a year before it all like went all the way back to family law. <laughs> like, this is what you know, this is what you're interested in, just go for it. So I did. And it, and it just like it all came back. And then as a practical matter, when you're on your own, it's very smart to specialize in something, right? So it's smart to specialize, to niche. Well, what do they say? Um, Jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah. I just kind of looked at this as an opportunity and I thought, you know what, this is what you wanted. Give it a shot. See what you got. See if you're right. Is there another way to do this? Can you do this on your own? Were you right? Is it the environment? Was it you? What's the, what, what happened back there? And, and, and let's, let's play this forward and see what happens. And here we are. Here we are. How many years later? <laughs> well, that was in uh, 2012. So here we are almost nine years later, almost a, almost a decade. So you've um, had your practice for almost 10 years. Yeah. Coming are you up. happy? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm only hesitating. Like, it's, it's funny because like I really was happy when I, to say happy, like I really was happy right about the third year of my solo practice when everything was like clicking along i had like clients that i really liked not too many you know i had like five or ten i worked the, the cases thoroughly you know it was just enough money i didn't have any overhead to speak of and everything and and at that moment i was like yeah this is kind of cool um you know i'm making enough and and this is fine and then i got a little itch and i thought two things happen first of all I can't get any, I can't do any more than this because it's just me because of the time scale of money and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And I can't take a vacation. Yeah. Yeah. That's always a problem when you're a solo. But if you were happy with things the way they were, what, what would be the reason to have more clients just for more money? I didn't want more clients. I wanted more income. Okay. So it would be for more to make more money. So to scale. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Then I had a kid. So this is now 2014. He was born. And so I'm capped out at my income. I can't take a vacation. And now I have a baby. <laughs> so I thought, yeah, no, <laughs> this is not going to work. I have to, this whole solo thing is not going to work. I need help. I need help. So was that when you started coaching to kind of figure out how to do that? Yeah, it really was like, I, I kind of lumped it out for about a year and a half or so. And then, yeah, exactly. That's when I started like sort of ex exploring the, the coaching space, because remember like at that moment, like I didn't like it, like hiring anyone, like the, the sort of the mantra was, oh, this is so great. Like I've got no overhead. I've got no payroll, da, 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 da. And, and if you hang around with solos, they'll say the same thing. This is so great. I rent a, I rent a room and I've got like, you know, X per month and, and overhead. I have no overhead expenses and I don't even have a secretary and, and I got no payroll and I'm free as a bird. I was in that place once. Sometimes looking back on it, it you know, when you have growing pains, it seems attractive. <laughs> like, why did I leave that again? Maybe I should go right. do that again. Yeah. But I think <laughs> the, sure. the biggest complaint that for me was like you said, you're doing everything. Yes. Like literally licking stamps. Yes. Literally. I was putting motions together. <laughs> yes, putting I was motions going together. to the post office to mail them. <laughs> I was 
ordering tabs. The, <laughs> I was printing the FedEx labels. Um, but you know what? It always got done right. <laughs> well, the, you know, that's so funny. That's true. And that was the other thing that, that was bothering me, if you want to say it that way, is that I wanted to be an attorney. I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't want to be a secretary or a paralegal. I wanted to be the lawyer. And I didn't quite understand what that, that I didn't understand that that meant that I'm going to have to delegate. And if delegate, if I have to delegate, I need somebody to delegate to. And then I'm yes. going to need more people to delegate to, and then I'm going to need to add an attorney. And then we're going to have to add a paralegal. And like, it, that's what growth looks like. I had no idea that that's what growth looked like at the time. So that's why I was just like, oh, you know, all I saw was that my overhead was getting bigger. I didn't understand yeah. the revenue part of it. I didn't understand, like all that was getting kind of wonky. Yeah. You get so. nervous when you see the revenue going, well, not the revenue, the overhead going up. Yeah. But then you don't realize until you actually see it in action that when you hire people, uh -huh. you can make more money as long as you leverage that personnel properly. Totally It'll counterintuitive. Yeah. Yeah. It's very counterintuitive. Yeah. And a hundred percent. I finally did hire an attorney and then, you know, things kind of went whatever. And then when that attorney finally left, you know, the response was, well, she's off the payroll, which I totally understand. Like that was an expensive employee. Yeah, except <laughs> that's your source of revenue is your attorneys in when you're an attorney in a firm, that's what you do is you create the revenue. Yeah. And I hadn't connected with that idea. So when he said that, I was like, oh yeah, great news. <laughs> like, oh no, but you're going backwards. And, th and of course that's what my business coach told me, but I wasn't getting any of it. Like I just, it wasn't landing with me. I was very disorganized in my mind. So I had the, I wanted real bad to grow, but I didn't know what it meant. And I couldn't, I couldn't endure the pains and I didn't know how, I didn't know how to make the choices. And, and I, I you know, the, the learning wasn't landing and I was disorganized on my inside. And so, you know, what happened is I turned 50, I turned 50 last year. I'm 51 now. Happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> I turned 50. I don't know what it is about that number for me. Probably a lot of people feel the same way. I felt as though okay, now's the time to do this. You have reached the 50th year of your life. Time to stop effing around and figure out what the hell is going on. Just, just figure it out. Go. So I joined, I joined HTM. So HTM is run by R. John Robbins, who is you know, in the Nagel universe also. So just tell people who are watching that might not know yeah. who, what HTM is or David or that crowd. Right. So, um, well, we talked about David a little bit earlier, David Nagel. Um, he's like a, he's like a coach's coach. He's like a big mindset coach. He's like a coach yeah. to the coaches. <laughs> he teaches people how to think. He does. He does. He teaches how to, how to organize your mind. I've done like a lot of furniture has been rearranged in there. Things look very different to me now than they ever did before trust yeah. me. And you know, I can like, at this point I can say that I'm almost fully like the, the, my functionality level is, is like really increased. Arjun Robbins is an attorney from Florida and he started a business called how to manage a small law firm or HTM. And, and he was coached by David. Yes. He was he coached was by flat broke. Yes. <laughs> he found the money somehow. Yeah. To hire David. 
and now mm-hmm. he's got a multi-million yeah. dollar multi-million dollar business. enterprise right the cool thing about his business model is that when you get to be like one of these bigger firms and you've got like you know five ten million or whatever in revenue then you're going to need you know a ceo you're going to have a chief executive officer you're going to have a chief marketing officer you're going to have a chief operations officer you're going to have all these people to help you can have a decent bookkeeper you're going to have an awesome cpa you're going to have all this like this team that we all see on tv that we all want, but you can't afford it until you get there, but you can't get there until you got those things. Yeah. So I was like chicken and the egg. <laughs> yes. So Arjun is like, I got an idea. I'm going to take all of these CEOs, CFOs, COOs, and all these people, and I'm going to bring them together in a stable full of these people. And then I'm going to rent them out to smaller people like me, like smaller firms. And I'm not only that, I'm going to teach you how to use them and we're going to grow your asses and you're going to get big if you want to. And then you're going to have your own, they call them a C-suite, right? So you're going to have your yeah. own C-suite. But until then, we're going to give you your own and teach you how to use them, teach you how to grow yourself as big as you want to get. You sort of meet with them virtually. You have calls with them. You know, they give you assignments. They have all, all these systems and things that they're doing. And it's phenomenal. But there's no way that I could have absorbed that without some heavy coaching of my own, which I knew going in. And in fact, I had to be coached to say yes to HTM. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that situation, that, that has helped me tremendously. I mean, it's, it's not for everybody, but for me, like, I'm just like drinking it with a straw. Like, I love it. And I'm drinking doing the like- Kool-Aid. I am drinking the Kool-Aid like there is no tomorrow. Like there is just no time. There is just no time. That's There's no time. I and always say, don't reinvent the wheel. Just don't. Too. You know, yeah. somebody's done what you want to do. Learn mm-hmm. from them how they did it. 100%. I don't think there's, there, there's no, you don't get a, an award because you did it the hard way. You know, <laughs> you don't get a medal. Yes, exactly. So, yep. So that's, uh, HTM is where I am. And then last but not least, I really wanted to work with somebody to help me because the way I learn is kind of like this conversation. I learn by connecting with people. That's my learning style. So yeah, I can read and I can listen to podcasts and this and that, but the interactive is one, is one way that I learned and accountability I've learned is not a bad, is not a four letter word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I knew that I needed somebody to really crack the whip with me because I have 50 years worth of conditioning to get rid of. So I can't do it by myself. I, I tried <laughs> and I can't do it by myself. So um, I was, I don't even remember what I was doing. I think I was probably scrolling Facebook at some point, made some sort of a comment to Amir Alvarez's post. And if you don't know Amira Alvarez, she's yet another person who studied with David. I mean, she's a client of, uh, you know, for, she worked with David Nagel. So she has the same, it's like the same universe. Like they're, they're all, all yeah. from different perspectives, but they're all kind of speaking the same language, if you will. So I, I responded to her and she, she messaged me. And this was in March of this year. She messaged me and my heart stopped. I was like, oh my God, like. Amira Alvarez just personally <laughs> messaged me. <laughs> like, oh my God. I was like, oh. you've been watching her for a while? Yeah, I totally been stalking her. And the, and the funny thing was that I wanted somebody, I, I wanted to work with her so bad because 
like I, I have a lot of like power and energy, but I have trouble expressing it. And I need to have somebody like to connect with somebody to help me like bring that out. And it can't be, a, I don't, it can't be a guy and it can't be the wrong woman. It has to be just like, and, and I just, it was so funny because it just clicked with me a little bit later that on that June, on that fateful June day in 2019, when we were all in Atlanta uh, at the David Nagel, he, he has a lunch. And at the lunch, she said, big tables with all your, you know, uh, all of your sort of uh, summit mates. And what he does is he has his, cli his clients, like his coaching people come around and they say, hey, how's it going? You know, my name's Joe, whatever. You know, and Amira came to our table way back then. And I looked at her and I thought, I wish I could be like that someday. I just wish I could just be, be present. Like she came up to that table and she introduced herself and she was just like the shining example of someone who was just living it. I didn't know who she was or what she was about, but she came to the table and was just like, yeah, hey, I've worked with David, how are you? And she was just talking and everything, but she just had this energy about her. And I just, and she, you know, she was wearing the clothes and she was like very, she was very just expressed and she was like very out there and everything. And I thought, oh man, how cool would that be? <laughs> and then you could just wear a jacket like that and you could wear like make your hair look like that. And you could like wear those earrings that you've got. And <laughs> but that's so you cool. now, isn't it? Right. So that, that thought surfaced and then I went right back in and I didn't think about it. And then when she, so when she messaged me, like that moment kind of came back to me and I realized who she was and, in real life. And I was like, holy, like, oh my God, this is that, this is that woman. This is that person. This is the person. It's her. She's messaging me. So I got on the phone with her and she would, I mean, and you signed up. <laughs> I did. I did. I did. I said, you are what I want. And I, and more importantly, I am what I want. And I think that you are the person who can teach me what it is to be me. You've been coaching with her since March of 2020. Mm -hmm. I have to say, I mean, I've talked to you here and there, and I definitely can detect a, a, a different level of confidence. Yeah than I used to. Not that I ever had the perception that you weren't confident, right. but I feel like now you're a little bit more directed. Like, you know what you want now better. Yeah. I mean, the word that I would use, maybe, um, I don't know what you're perceiving, but what I'm, what I'm experiencing is expression. Yeah. To express anything, you have to know what it is that you're expressing. Otherwise you're just expressing here, there and everywhere. But it, it's a matter of focus. It's a matter of, and I don't mean like laser focus. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's just a matter of focus. You know, David talks about this a lot, like focus on what it is that you want, which is like a chicken and egg, because if you don't really know what you want, then how do you know what you're focusing on? And then there's a whole, like, you, you got to kind of figure out what your, where your desire is coming from. And then you need to acknowledge your, your desire. And like we were talking about earlier, give yourself permission to have the desire in the first place. Then for me, I had to scrub the word desire in the first place because where I grew up, desire is a naughty word. Yes. I always think of something sexual when I hear the word desire. That's right. <laughs> our, if, our minds are in the gutter. <laughs> and if David were here, he would say, yes, that is one of the most powerful desires. Right. I did a little program with uh, one of his minor programs with David uh, Nagel. I went down in uh, to Charlotte and we had some 
surprise laser coaching, which was, it was a multi-day uh, thing. And so the night before I was out with some, with some of the friends there and we were just talking about, you know, desire and what do you want? And I was just complaining. It's like, oh man, you know, I can never really, I can't say, I feel like I can't say it out loud. I can't feel, I just feel like I can't get it out. Like, what is it? Like, what do I want? What is it that I want? And my friends challenged me and they're like, you know exactly what you want. Just say it out loud. Of course we had been like, like it was like six margaritas later. It's like, just say it out loud. What do you want? I said, you know what? I want a $2 million horse farm. And I was like, oh no, I, I said it. I said it out loud. I said it out loud. Oh my God. And I kind of looked around. I'm like, is this restaurant going to collapse on us now? <laughs> and I was like, I just like, like my, the tears came and I was like, holy shit. I didn't know that's what I wanted until I said it out loud. You had never actually had a thought like that, that that's what you wanted. Not that concrete, not like that. No. Because by the way, you're not allowed to have thoughts like that for, for a lot of reasons that I've been through, you know, that has come up in the, in the coaching sessions. Um, you know, there are lots and lots of stuff in my background, not just, you know, living in the Midwest, but just like all these secret packs that you make with people, agreements that you don't realize you're making, set points that you create for yourself that you can't go above because then you'd be hurting somebody else, but they don't know that that even exists. It's all in, in your imagination and everything. Just wasn't allowed. I just didn't allow it. I didn't allow it. I was, didn't allow it. I was honoring all those agreements that I made. Stay small, stay small, stay small. Stay small, stay in your lane, stay capable, stay competent, but don't be big and don't desire anything. That's just be happy years. with what you have. Just be, can't you just be happy with what you, you should happy. be grateful for those new shoes. You, I know you wanted red, but you got blue and that should be okay. There are people in the world who don't have shoes. <laughs> right. Be grateful <laughs> yeah, for your shoes. Exactly. Your brother doesn't have shoes like that. Why would you get shoes like that? And on and on and on. Because exactly. you don't deserve it. That would be well, the that only was reason. But you do when you're a it. kid. Yeah. When you're a kid, that's the, that's the conclusion that you come to. You do so you deserve say, it. And absolutely. whoever's listening, you deserve it too. You deserve it. You deserve whatever. All of want. it. All yes. of it. Yes. So that's when I said that out loud and that just changed everything. I love that story. I feel like there's more, we're going to have to have a, a sequel to this podcast <laughs> in six months. Okay. I'll be here. We'll see how much has changed. <laughs> yeah, I think it will be. I mean, you're growing and you've got big things going on. What's we'll your projection you. on the $2 million house, uh, house uh, horse farm? Yeah. Well, I mean, I made a business plan for it. So nice. it's, uh, it's happening and it's not only happening, <clears throat> but it's not just a horse farm. It's a, it's an, it's an equine facility. It's going to be pretty state of the art and it's going to involve horses and therapy. So like equine assisted therapy. So for up-leveling breakthroughs, PTSD, you know, different things we'll raise horses. I mean, we're going to enjoy them anyway, but there'll be like, um, a lot of, I, I'm, I'm really looking into the equine therapy thing. There's a lot of really exciting things going on in that space, sort of energetically, like moving into like energy therapy, huge things just because of what I've experienced, uh, in my life with them. And, uh, you know, there are, there's a, there are a lot of people out there who could really benefit for it. In fact, I was just talking to somebody the other day and I was just kind of, you know, chit chatting about this. And, and she said her eyes just, she got real quiet and her eyes just kind of got real big. And I was like, what's up? And she's like, that's amazing. What you're talking about. I'm like, what, what I, 
yeah, I mean, I think so, but why do you think so? <laughs> She's like, I never tell anybody this, but my daughter was an anorexic and she went to one of those programs where they matched her up with a horse and it saved her life. And she's here today because of that program. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> I mean, well, I have goosebumps just thinking about it. What brought that to you? Did you have an experience like that when you were young with a horse or an, an animal? Yeah, I, I, it, it's funny. Um, just we were talking earlier about um, about the singing thing. The big joke that my mom loves to tell is that like my first words were mommy, daddy, horsey. I was on like a cellular level. <laughs> I love them. I, I, I'm just, it's, it's not even an obsession. It's like, it's like a thing, <laughs> the spirit animal, whatever you want to say. When I, before I even had this, uh, was too young to remember this, but my mom would take me along and she was like chaperoning, like, you know, uh, classes going places and, and, uh, you know, being where we were, like in a fairly rural area, they ended up at the, at the farm and they had the little chickies and the duckies and the kitties and the this and the that. And all the kids were all looking at all those things and where's Heather? Oh, Heather's out in the pasture with the big draft horses, not even on the fence. She's on the other side of the fence with them. Their feet are like this big around wow. and she's like this tall. And my mom is like, what? <laughs> and, the, and that's, it's just it for me. I just, I love them. I just love them. All of them. Well, how did you not go into work with horses? How did you become a lawyer? I know we just spent, you know, two hours talking about this, but I think we skipped that part. Yeah, <laughs> so we how skipped did that you part. Work with horses. So remember the divorce? Mm -hmm. That I I didn't have any way to do it. I I didn't let me rephrase. I didn't think I had any way to do it. It was a, it was a time when I had been sent away to an eight-week camp at Interlochen, which is a, an arts camp for music. And then after that, I came back to where I grew up for a couple of years. And then after that, I went, I went to Interlochen and I graduated from Interlochen Arts Academy in my junior and senior years. That wasn't, wasn't even home. So any sort of continuity with it, you know, just kind of dissipated. There were, you, know, you know how it is in the divorce. The money goes away. The time goes away. Just everything goes away. So whatever you were up to before the divorce, you're not up to mm -hmm. it anymore, really, unless you're very small. You know, like karate classes continue, but, you know, the, all, all the other things just like it just for whatever reason. And I don't regret it. Um, that didn't. It didn't happen. I went in a different direction. If I had gone in that direction, I wouldn't gone to Oberlin, for example. So like Interlochen was what, what got me, that, that diploma got me into Oberlin Conservatory, which got me into, oh my gosh, there are people from, you know, I went to Interlochen and this is another story altogether, but I went to Interlochen and I met people from all over the world. It's an international school. 
So I went to the I went to school with the son of the Prince of the Ivory Coast, and I went to you know the with the you know uh, CEO people would send their kids there. So like the CEO of Pepsi had their their kid there. Like just all these, and they're from they're from all over the world. Like like some of them like don't even speak English as a first night. Like the, it was my first experience with all that stuff. So kind of got immersed in that. And after that, I was like, oh friggin', I'm not going home. <laughs> I'm going anywhere but home. I'm gonna go see what this is about. I'm out of here. So I left. You have Michigan. some diversity. Yeah, exactly. I loved it. So I said, I'm leaving. So I took my diploma and I went to Oberlin and Oberlin is in the middle of nowhere. It's just uh, Southwest of Cleveland in Ohio, but the people who are there are there are from the coasts. So I knew a bunch of people from New York, a bunch of people from DC and a bunch of people from Seattle and Portland. And they all come to the middle of the country to hang out and be liberal and <laughs> protest and whatever, <laughs> and all kinds of other things. Um, and then after you're done with that, then they all disperse. Yeah. So, so after that, I came to the East coast because it just, I followed the energy basically. I'm like the energy's over here. So I wanted to be somewhere close to New York to see what was going on. And that, it just kind of took precedence. I mean, that's the trouble with having like a lot of interests is that you, you end up chasing a lot of, you, know, you end up following yeah. a lot of thoughts, a lot of trains of thought, you know, that yeah, is, you don't know where to put that, the energy. Yeah. I mean, you have so many choices and, uh, you know, there are people and you know them from law school who are like laser focused, like, oh, I want to be an accountant and I've always wanted to be, I've always been good at math and this is all I can do. And then there are people who are just like Renaissance. We're just like, well, I've done some acting and I've done some of this and I've done some of that. And right now I'm an attorney and then I'm going to start a nonprofit and then I'm going to go over here. And then, you know, that's, I, I guess I'm one of those people because well, I think those people are more interesting. <laughs> Well, they're more fun to drink with, that's for sure. <laughs> and there's a lot more to talk about during an interview, too. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, yeah. I became an accountant. End of story. <laughs> yeah. <Dang. The> end. <laughs> well, well, I encourage anybody with, uh, with, with any interest to just pursue it. Life is short. Live it. It's complete. true. It's just true. It. You know, we don't know how long we get. I always say that. And, you know, my friends right. think I'm all morbid. But we really don't. We don't know how long we get. You know, I'm 45. I'm not that far behind you. And I, I don't know if I have five years left or 20 years left or, or just tomorrow. I don't know. Yep. You really never know. You really never know. So I like to end every interview with a series of Proust questions. <laughs> have you ever done a Proust questionnaire? I don't think so. I stole it from the back of Vanity Fair magazine, okay? I'm not, I'm not professing to have come up with this myself. They're just a series of questions to reveal something about your character. I feel like I've revealed a bunch already. You have, you have. Okay, okay lay it on me. So there's Second a bunch. And sometimes I just kind of pick them out of my head. So um, what is your idea of profound happiness? Ooh, a trail ride, of course. Okay. <laughs> yes, of course. I mean, I didn't silly. <laughs> what is your idea of profound misery? Oh man, no trail rides. <laughs> no, uh, that's cheating. <laughs> oh boy, profound misery. I mean, geez, you know, I working like for somebody else in a job that, that you hate. Yes. Well, and you know what that's like because you've done it. I don't know that. Yeah, I guess I kind of, I guess I kind of have, I mean, I just, I really have to own my own part in that, but yeah, yeah. I've definitely had, I have had sucky jobs. They do suck. Yeah. <laughs> I think stuck. we've all been there. Well, I think a lot of people have been there. Some people yeah. are there now. They just don't realize it. <laughs> what would you tell other women who are thinking of starting their own law firm, but are afraid? 
talk to other people who have done it. That's right. And talk to other people who have done it. Talk to other people who have done it specifically talk to people who, who have like, don't, don't, I mean, you can talk to people who already have like firms, like established firms, but I found it a lot more interesting to talk to other solos. These are the struggles that solo people go through. These are the, and what you'll find is that there's so much information there. They'll, they'll be able to tell you ups, downs, and sideways, what kind of printers to get and who to stay, how to hire, who to stay, what to stay away from and all this stuff. You're also going to get a whole lot of people who only want to be a solo. So just be prepared for that. I mean, you could just find your people. That's what I would say. Just find, find find your people and talk with them and don't be afraid to take people out to lunch. Yeah. When this is all over or even before, just take, that's what I did. I was like, I was lunching incessantly and I would just talk with people and find out, you know, what's up. Just get that encouragement advice. So if you could sit on a park bench and talk to anybody who's alive or dead, who would that be? Oh my God. Whenever I hear this question, I can't tell you why, but Einstein comes to mind. That's a good one. I would love to talk to you. Oh my God. Well, first of all, he's super smart and he's got like a wicked sense of humor and he's just, he's so like, uh, he's, he's like positive. You know, he's like yeah. a positive force in the, in the world. It's just like the stuff that he thinks about and the stuff that he, he uh, like the observations that he would make. I would just love to spend like a week on a park bench and just listen to him talk. That, <laughs> that would be my answer too. Because he wasn't just a science guy. No, he was a humanitarian for sure. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So what do you think is the most overrated virtue what are they again? <laughs> I don't, I don't think I could rattle them off. Give me, give me some examples. Patient, pride. patient. No, those are not virtues. Those are uh, pride, avarice, sloth, and all that. You're making this complicated, Heather. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, like patience is a virtue. What is it? That's pretty overrated. <laughs> Let me say, um, you could probably hear me typing. Now I'm going to have to have these handy. Yeah, it's it's not a virtue. It's a um it's a, the seven deadly sins you're talking about, right? From the movie? Maybe <laughs> Slaw, a sloth, avarice. <laughs> oh no, pride isn't on there. Okay. So they are chastity, temperance, Charity. Well, chastity is way overrated. <laughs> Let's just be, we can stop right there. Chastity. I don't even need to go over and hear, hear the rest of them. That is way overrated <laughs> for sure. Charity, diligence, patience, kindness, humility. I, I think when I answer, when I ask that question, um, actually pride, uh, the sin is pride, but yes, the, you're talking about the sins. Yeah. It's related to humility. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, They're like the flip sides of the. Of so the- now we just had a lesson that we're clarifying what they are. The sins <laughs> well, are lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. Well, those are way more fun to talk about. So- <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, charity is a great it, it is a great uh, virtue. Patience is a good one, but you can overuse it. Charity, I think, is. Would you say underrated? I think the charity is probably one of the most underrated ones. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, who do you most admire, living or dead? You can't say Einstein again. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not going to say Einstein. Who do I admire? Oh, geez. Oh, Boise. Can I say someone like 
Like, I really like, I really like Obama. Can I say that? Of course. I really yeah. like Obama. I like them both, but I like Obama. I admire him too. I, li- I, li- I like him. book? No, I haven't read it yet. I haven't read it yet. Are you going to read it? Do you have it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You do. Yeah. I don't have it, but I'm going to read it. Just trying to think of somebody that I would admire even more than him. I just think that it, it, it's just like, just like the, the even temperedness that he displayed you know, during some pretty tough times that, you know, being the first African-American president, like, can you imagine? And he just like carried it with such incredible modern grace. I think he is. He's just you know? a class act. Yeah. So is Michelle. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I admire them both. Yeah. Okay. What would you tell your 20 year old self? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> My 20 year old self. I probably would say get some focus. Like just get some focus. Doesn't even matter what you focus on. Just just get some focus. <laughs> just well, just everything some... seems to have worked out for you. So <laughs> I think 20-year-old Heather was was probably doing okay. She was a little wild. <laughs> okay. Last question. If you were writing life's instruction manual what rule would you have in it? Like, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, this is where you want to say something like, be kind. No. (laughs) No, like life's instruction manual, the stuff people don't tell you and you have to figure it out the hard way. I guess everything you have to figure out the hard way, but. Is this where I say eat dessert first? (laughs) Yeah, life is uncertain, eat dessert first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I would say. And I would apply it to everything. I just would. I would apply it to everything first. Yeah. Mm. Good answers. I like it. Food for thought. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope yeah. you do. It's been cool. And I'm totally down to do it again. As am I. You know where to find me. <laughs> and I would like to hear you sing. Okay. Grab it. I'll I'll send you a recording and you can use it for your outro. <laughs> I'm serious. I would actually do an audiogram or something. But. So, yeah. So uh, I actually competed in uh, Seton Hall Law Schools. Uh, they had like an American Idol competition and I and I participated really? in that. It was pretty exciting. Did you win? They didn't understand it. This, I, I came like in a ball gown, you know, and, and sang some opera and they were like, <laughs> went right over their heads like but they weren't sure if they were supposed to laugh or not but it was like real so they didn't laugh but I didn't get it like somebody who did like hip-hop something or other one so. were they good yeah they're pretty good oh, okay I was I, I wasn't I was not regretting that but. well in my next life I'm gonna be able to sing I think you can probably sing now no trust me <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sending you recordings so don't ask okay <laughs> all right well thank you and um I enjoyed this. Oh, thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, 
please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.